Well, so if you've been here for the last few weeks, you know, we've been in a series, or not the last few months, um, we've been in a series looking at the life of Moses, who's one of the major uh, characters of the Old Testament scriptures and the whole Bible. And so far, we've been journeying through the book of Exodus. Um, and today, we're actually dipping into, and we're going to be here next week as well, into the book of Numbers. And contrary to what you might think, Numbers, the book of Numbers, is more than simply the place where Bible reading plans go to die. Um, it is a book that recounts the story of Moses and the people after they've left Egypt, been delivered by God. Um, it recounts their wanderings in the wilderness. And so um, we're going to look at two scenes from these wanderings in the next two weeks. And today we're going to be at the, the first one in Numbers chapter 11. So if you got your bulletin, you can see there the, the scriptures we're going to look at. And we're, we're kind of going to cover this whole chapter, but um, I'm only going to read and we're really going to focus on verses 4 through 6, 10 through 20, and then 31 through 34. So if you want to open that up and have that before you, and we'll also have it up on the, here on the screen. I'm going to read it before uh, I dive into it. And so well, let's look at this, Numbers 11, starting in verse 4. It says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. When Moses heard people weeping, the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. And Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. And bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? And then going to verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore the name of that place was called Kibrath Hata'avah, because there they buried the people who had the craving. 
is God's word. Well, this week I got to do something that I um, love getting to do and, and do often. I got to sit down for lunch with someone here from South End. And well, we sat down and, and just were kind of catching up. And then this person I was with asked me this great and super humble question. This person said, Aaron, I want to grow. And so if you could give me like your top maybe few areas of focus for someone like me, someone uh, who goes to South End, is the type of person I am, what would that be? And I loved that. It was a great question. And so we started talking about some things. I shared some things that uh, have been fresh for me that I feel like God's been inviting me into lately. It was a great time, great conversation. But it got me thinking, yeah, what are some of the main things we need to be thinking about and working on? And I kept chewing on that. And then I came to this passage. And I'll be honest, discontentment, grumbling, and complaining were not that high on my list when I first started thinking about this question. But then I realized how much this keeps showing up in this story of the life of Moses. It's a theme we've already encountered multiple times. It keeps happening. So clearly this is a big deal in general to God and a big struggle for us as, as human beings trying to follow him. And then I thought more about us specifically and about that question my friend asked, and I'm like, yes, this is so important for us. Living in the, the kind of place we do here in Charlotte where so much of the culture can be about climbing the ladder, accumulating and acquiring more. It's, it's a culture that can breed discontentment and grumbling for us about where we are, where we wish we were, that we're not at the moment. And I was thinking about the kind of people a place like this attracts. People like us who have been successful who want to be successful, and probably a lot of our success has been driven by being discontent with where we are, right? Being unsatisfied and pushing to get to the next level. And so it hit me, man, this is huge for us. This probably is one of the key areas we need to be focusing on and thinking about, because clearly it's a key ingredient for God, our discontentment, our grumbling. And so that's what we're going to zone in on this morning as we walk through this passage, grumbling and what God wants to teach us about it. And so we're going to look at this story, and we're going to look at three things in light of this. We're going to look at, number one, the pervasiveness of our grumbling. Number two, the problem of our grumbling. And then third, the remedy to our grumbling. So the pervasiveness, the problem, and then the remedy. First, the pervasiveness of our grumbling. Grumbling is, is it's so pervasive in this passage. It's all over it. And as I said, this is not the first time it's shown up in the story of these people. As early as the Red Sea event in Exodus 14, the people start grumbling and saying things like this, oh, if only we could go back to Egypt. Then in Exodus 15, they grumble about the bitter water they can't drink. They grumble about being hungry to God before he first gives them manna in Exodus 16. Then they grumble about water again one chapter later in Exodus 17. And this isn't the last time they grumble. It continues to show up even after this passage we're looking at. And grumbling is annoying. I mean, let's just be honest about that. No one likes to hear someone complain unless, unless of course, someone's complaining about something that you're also complaining about because then, then we enjoy it. But in general, we don't like it. it. Like, we don't describe people we enjoy or like a new friend we've met by saying, hey, let me tell you about this person I really enjoy. Like, he or she, they complain a lot. It's so refreshing. Right? We don't do that. And so it's hard not to see this come up again and get annoyed and just write these people off to say, okay, we get it. They like to complain. Let's move on. 
But we can't do that because if we do, then we miss one of the main points we're supposed to get from how much this keeps happening. And that is, this is such a big part of who we are and how our sin shows up. That's why it keeps happening so much for them. Because like them, we too grow discontent with where God has us. And what do we do? We grumble and we complain about it. We complain about our jobs, about our spouses, our kids, our coworkers, the traffic, the weather, our politicians, our favorite sports teams, the new season of our favorite show that we don't think is as good as the last one was, our schools, our church, our house, the neighborhood we live in, the season of life we're in. And that, that's not to say there's, there's not, it's not ever legitimate to notice what's wrong or what could be better and to comment on that course we live in a broken world so there's always things that could be better and it is okay to to talk about and, and notice those things but how much of the time are you and I focused on what is not and the things we don't have compared to what is and the things we do have like the people here how much of our heart and headspace is caught up with some strong craving that's not being met in our life right now while we're ignoring all that we do have and we grumble about it. Uh, based off the environment I grew up in and the way I'm wired, I, I hate the idea of complaining. I like to think I'm not someone who, who really does complain, but of course I do. And I asked Sarah yesterday, hey, what do, I, what, do you, what do you think I complain about the most? And she said, well, the thing you were just complaining about right before you asked me this question, that we woke up too late and we didn't get everything for breakfast ready in time and so you weren't able to take a shower and get ready for the day like you wanted to. Like your schedule, you want everything to be perfect. You, you, you complain all the time when you're interrupted or you get thrown off in some way. And she's right, I complain about that all the time, right, among other, many other things. And we all have the different things that we complain about often, but grumbling, it's, it's like second nature for us. It's not a skill we have to learn as a parent, it's not something you have to sit down and teach your kids, hey, let me tell you now um, how to complain about something, right? How to whine about what's going on and what, what you have or don't have. So it runs deep in us, but it, it doesn't only run deep in us. What this passage also teaches us is that it's also pervasive in our communities. And one of the fascinating things that a commentator named Ian Duguid pointed out to me from this is how contagious grumbling is. Because look, it begins in verse 4 with a group called the rabble. So look at the beginning of verse 4. And you got to look closely to see this. But it says, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. So this was a mixed group made up of different nationalities who came out of Egypt with the people of Israel, but who never fully assimilated and took on their values. And so they started all off. But then notice what happens. Then it moves to the entire group because then verse 4 continues and it says, And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. And so then, so they're complaining, the rabble complains, the whole group's complaining, and then... What happens? Moses hears them grumbling, and what does he do? He starts to grumble about their grumbling. Look at verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. And Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive this people? Did I give them birth? 
that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers, and on and on he keeps going. And so our, our two oldest kids are in preschool right now four days a week, and one of the things that means is it's a miracle in our house if we can go more than a week without someone having a runny nose. I mean, it just is. Mayor Banks will get one, then Sarah and I will get it. One cycle will take about a month to work its way through our entire house. I feel like we're just kind of getting to the end of that now, but then by the time we get through it, another one will kick back up. So it's just constant. I'm just sort of getting through one myself, and I'm already ready, gearing up to to go ahead and get some other cold soon, because these are so contagious. Like the kids at preschool, they pass them around, and they give them to Sarah and I, and we pass them around. And see, grumbling works like that. It's contagious. It spreads and infects the people around you. When you're around people, you can think about this, who are, who are constantly discontent and grumbling about where they are. How does that impact you? It, it causes you to start grumbling and be discontent. And then if you're the one who's discontent and grumbling, you can often infect a group of people and, and you can bring other people into that. We all like to do it. And so it spreads like these colds in a preschool or a daycare. It spreads in our homes in our friend groups, in our teams at work, and here in our church family, the place where we should theoretically be marked most by contentment and gratitude. And so first, we need to see just how pervasive this is, how natural it is for us to do this, and then how uh, much it, it spreads among us. And that then brings us to our second point, the problem of our grumbling. Because this isn't just some annoying behavioral action that we need to try to avoid because we don't like it and it's not becoming, but it's a serious problem. And why is that? Well, because of what it reveals. And what it reveals is unbelief. It reveals unbelief. And that's where this is so different from a lament or what we could call a godly complaint, which is where you cry out to God about disappointment in your life about hurt, about anger, about frustration, confusion, but you do it in a way that comes from faith. A way that declares, God, even though I don't understand or like what you've got going on for me right now, I I still trust that you're God and that you're good. And so I know I can come to you and I can be honest about where I am. And that's a beautiful thing to do. That's what you see all over the Psalms. Two-thirds, actually, of the Psalms are Psalms of Lament. You see it in other parts of the Bible. Some of you may remember we even did a series on lament back in the fall of 2019. But that's not what's happening here. This is not a faith-driven, honest wrestling with God. This is unbelief. And, And let me show you. Let's look a little deeper at this. Because when you operate out of unbelief instead of faith, you begin to look at your life without an awareness of God without an awareness of who he is and what he's done for you in the past and all the ways he's promised to provide for you in the future. You forget all that and you you start to see your life through a distorted lens, a lens that doesn't match up with reality. And you start to say things like the people of Israel do in verse 5 and 4 when they say, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. You're like, hmm, the fish that cost you nothing. Let's think about that. Yes, maybe technically you didn't pay for them, but that's because you worked for a slave for 400 years and never got paid for any work you did ever. So this wasn't free. 
And then they say in verse 6, but now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. And they're basically saying, this stuff is terrible. It's boring. It's bland. We're sick of looking at it. But then right after that, verses 7 and 8 come in and remind us what's really true. Verse 7 says, now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of bdellium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. Now, I didn't know this until um, I studied this this week, but bdellium was one of the types of stone around the area of the Garden of Eden, according to Genesis 2.12. So clearly this wasn't something you'd get sick of looking at. Like clearly this was a beautiful thing, manna was. And what's real is it was basically a donut that could meet all your nutritional needs. Right? I mean, this is all they ate. And apparently you can cook it, you could cook it in all kinds of different ways. Not to mention it actually was free. God did truly give this, them this bread freely every morning. Nothing they're saying matches up with reality. It's unbelief. And Moses' discontentment and grumbling shows us the same thing because listen to how he sounds. Listen again to the way he's speaking, the, the lens through which he's viewing his situation. So again, in verse 11, he complains to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. Do you hear his self-pity? Do you, see, do you hear how consumed with himself he is. In the original language, he refers to himself 20 times in these five verses. Just going off of this, you would think this is someone who, who doesn't really know who this God is who's calling him to lead these people. Someone who hasn't really experienced God coming through and helping or providing for him in any way. And this is what grumbling uncovers in our hearts. When you and I do it, it communicates that we're living like functional atheists. And even more, not just that we aren't trusting God, but that we want to put ourselves in his place. It's communicating, I know better than you. I know what I need and how my life should be going much better than you. So why don't you just get on board with it? Even thinking about my small complaint yesterday morning and my much bigger complaints about everything not going according to my plan and me getting interrupted. Like this is what I'm communicating God, if you just clear the path for me to execute my plans for the day, for the week, for the month, for the year, for my life, then you would see that that's the right thing to do, right? Then you would see I've been right about this the whole time. And that's a huge problem when we live that way. And this passage ends by showing us. It's a hard, sobering ending. You may have noticed that when I read it initially. God basically says, okay, you want meat? I'll give you meat. I'll give you way more than you even want. I'll give you over to this strong craving you have. And it ends in this deadly plague 
that comes on this initial group of people who had this strong craving. And it is hard. But what he's teaching them and what he's teaching us is what happens when we keep going down this path. He's teaching us that this is what's there for us at the end of the road when we keep demanding God to give us what we want instead of trusting him to give us what we need. We might just get it. And that's not often the way I think about God's judgment, but in the scriptures, that's a common way it plays out. God eventually says, okay, you got it. I'll let you have what you want. I'll give you over to it. And what you're going to find is that it's a dead end. I mean, think about this. What if God gave you everything you've always wanted? I mean, think about your life. Do a brief survey through many of the strong cravings you've had throughout your life. What if God gave you over to every single one of those? Do you think that'd be a good result? I mean, that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? If God always gave us over to these things. But that's where, that's where this ends. This is saying. So then what are we to do? All right, what are we going to do about this problem we have that's so pervasive, that's so serious? What's the remedy? Well, we need what Moses got. We need to experience grace in spite of our grumbling. And now this is a little mysterious. The rabble with the strong craving, they grumble, they cause everyone else to grumble, and they get God's judgment. He gives them over to their desire unchecked. But what about Moses? Because as we've seen, he's also discontent and grumbling right there with them. Well, for no reason other than he wants to, God chooses to give him grace. Because look at how he responds to Moses in verse 16. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So Moses grumbles and complains, and God provides for him more than he could have imagined. He just says, I don't want to do this alone, but God doesn't give him two or three people to help him. He gives him 70 elders. And this is what brings him back to sanity. And if you read this whole chapter, you can see him improving throughout the story as God reminds him, Moses, you're okay. I've got you. I love you. I know what you need better than you do. And that's exactly what I'm going to give you. It's grace. That's the remedy. Not only us not getting what we deserve, but us getting so much more. And that's exactly the kind of grace God has given you and me in another Moses, a better one. See, because Moses' role in this group, as we've talked about in this series, was to be the mediator for these people, the mediator, the one who goes between them and God, who, who steps in and stands in the gap between them. And in the passage just before this one, at the start of Numbers 11, we see a very similar thing happening to what's happening right here. The people are frustrated about where God has them, and so they grumble, and God brings down judgment. But the difference is Moses steps in. He intervenes. He prays to God for them. And we see this, Numbers 11, verses 1 and 2, says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, 
And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses. So if you stop right there, that's kind of, in a nutshell, our story we're looking at. But then look at what happens that's different. They cry out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So he prays to God for them. He mediates, and God relents. But what about our passage? What does Moses do? Again, Ian Duguid in his commentary pointed out to me that Moses should have intervened for them again. He should have stepped in again and gone to God on their behalf, but he didn't. What did he do instead? He grumbled about them. He complained to God about them. And so part of the problem is here, they need a better mediator. They need someone who wouldn't get tired of their grumbling and their failures and their sin and start grumbling about them. They need someone who wouldn't need 70 other men to come help him with his work, someone who was full of love and mercy, ready to stand in the gap when they blew it again. And that's what we need too. And that's just who we have. See, God gave Moses this grumbling group of people to lead. Jesus Christ has us. People who like them grumble and complain all the time, but instead of grumbling and complaining about it to his father, Jesus Christ went to the cross. He let the judgment of God that we deserve come down on him so that he could give us not not exactly what we want, but exactly what we need. Forgiveness from all of our sins, a perfect spotless record before God and a promise that one day we will make it home to the promised land where every craving we've ever had will be met in full. And this is what heals us. This is the remedy. When you see Jesus didn't grumble about me, he died for me. Even when I grumble about him and where he has me all the time, he went to the cross for me. And as Hebrews 7.25 tells us, now he always lives to intercede for me. That's what he's doing right now. And, And that's what fills you with faith. That's what drives out your unbelief, the grace of God we've been given in Jesus Christ, when we fix our eyes on him and we, when we take it into ourselves, See, then our desires, they don't have to become demands. We can still desire, we can still be disappointed and struggle about where we are, but even in that, we can learn to be content. And instead of grumbling, we can start coming to God with the kind of faithful wrestling we've been talking about. We can have the sort of faith that in the words of 17th century theologian Francis Fenelon says that is willing to let God act with the most perfect freedom, knowing that we belong to him and are to be concerned only about being faithful in that which he has given us to do for the moment. You know, as we talked about being discontent and grumbling, that's very contagious. It spreads like wildfire among a group of people. But you know what else is contagious? this. And I've been thinking about what, what, what would it look like for us to be a community who learns to be content, who replaces unbelief and grumbling with faith and honest wrestling together as we walk out these wilderness days, as we're headed to the promised land. What would it look like for us to be a community of people who could say more and more with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, where he says this, I have learned in whatever situation I am, to be content. 
I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And the good news of the gospel is that you and I, we together in Jesus Christ can. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, for this morning. Thank you for this good news. Um, Thank you for reminding us uh, of the way that you are so patient and kind with us, even when we do grumble and complain often and have a short-sighted view of you and what you're doing. Um, Use this this morning, I ask, in my heart and all of our hearts to remind us of um, the God you are, that you're the God who gives abundantly and help us to see that most of all as we look at Jesus and what he's done for us. We ask in his name, amen.